Good evening, this is Peter Coleman. I am on faculty here at Columbia University. I am a professor of psychology and education, both at Teachers College and at the Earth Institute. And I am a co-director of um, a consortium that we have here called the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity. And we have been doing this radio show now for about six, eight months um, to really help share with the listening audience um, the work that's being done around the university related to conflict prevention or sustainable development work um, or peace work that um, is usually takes the form of research, sometimes field work, uh, sometimes interesting courses and lectures that are being held here. Today, to this evening, we have the pleasure of uh, interviewing someone who does, I think, a very unique type of work in this area. His name is Josh Fisher. He is a PhD from George Mason University. He studied there at the School of Conflict Analysis and Resolution. And he um, is the first uh, postdoc here at the Earth Institute. He's a, he's a fellow at the Earth Institute and is a postdoc for the Advanced Consortium. Um, and he works in an interesting, um, I guess, nexus that connects work and conflict and uh, peace building and conflict management that also connects to environmental issues and to development work on the ground. And he's actually worked in all three of those areas in different ways and um, tries to, in his work, bring those uh, three lenses to bear on sort of doing useful and practical things on the ground um, and studying those things as he does them. So he's, he's worked all over the world. He's worked in Africa. He has a current project in Peru. So welcome, Josh. Thank you. And um, so what I'm going to ask Josh to do is just share with us some of the work that he's done as a way to illustrate how that work can be done. And maybe perhaps to start with the work in Mozambique, if you can just give us a little context uh, 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 as to what the objectives were and how you got involved. Great. Yeah, so I, uh, I work, as you said, at the intersection of environment, conflict, and development. Uh, my former training, my formal training was in environmental management uh, and also in political science. And after my, you know, after my academic training in a master's program, I went to I went into the development world specifically with the idea that through environmental management we can increase human development. And I spent some time in Mozambique working on a series of projects, um, one specifically doing some forestry work with a private company uh, that, that trains carpenters in Mozambique with the idea of instilling marketable skills on the local or for the local the local population so that they can then market themselves to some of the development organizations and incoming uh, resource ex exploration companies. Was this a nonprofit organization working there? No, that was a that was a for-profit. Uh -huh. um, and during that work I was I was stationed out in the out of the, in the middle of the bush and I was in a fairly peaceful village but I saw a lot of violence and a lot of low-level violence, a lot of kind of low-level conflict in villages adjacent to and a few miles away from where I was. And the question kept coming up in my mind why my village was so peaceful, yet other villages were, were more violent. And so from that experience, I walked away thinking I really needed to understand conflict dynamics if I wanted to pursue development and environmental management. So that's when I went to George Mason to do my PhD. Uh, after that, after I finished my PhD, where I looked at this nexus, um, I got an offer to go back to Mozambique with some colleagues at Utah State University that do uh, that do 
soil science and irrigation science. Um, they had been contracted by Gorongosa National Park to come in and really understand the agricultural and ecological dynamics in a new section of the park that had been gazetted in 2011. What is gazetted? Uh, basically, a new section had been added to the national park that wasn't previously part of the park. So it was added or designated as national park. <laughs> exactly, right. exactly. And so this new section already had populations that were well established and been living and farming in this area for quite a long time. And the park, in order to manage it effectively, needed to understand who these people were, what they, what their livelihood structures were and are in the park, um, and what sorts of management practices might best accommodate the biological and the social needs. And so they contracted my colleagues at Utah State, but my colleagues at Utah State were all physical scientists and had no idea how to really engage these, these communities on a social level. So they brought me in to come and administer a survey to households in the area, in the new park. And so we, uh, we entered the, you know, we, sorry. Would it be helpful just to provide some context about Mozambique? Because Mozambique is this kind of interesting um, nation that suffered, well, existed under colonial rule, Portuguese colonial rule, for I think something like 400 years, and then went through a very violent um, independence struggle, achieved independence, um, and then within a year or two broke into a civil war that was brutal and lasted for mm -hmm. about 16 years where hundreds of thousands of people were displaced and killed and um, all types of atrocities committed. So that's the context in which you're going into post-peace agreement. Right. 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 And so in Mozambique, post-peace post agreement, much of the population's heavily resource dependent. Yeah. You know, there's a burgeoning agricultural sector, a burgeoning mining sector, um, and a smaller industrial sector. But most of the population is dependent in some way on the natural resources. Uh, and so in the, in the context of the new national park, the communities there are all refugees from the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, and this area that had been incorporated in the national park was the former stronghold of the rebel group during the Civil War. And so in order to understand what these livelihood structures were comprised of, um, we had to go in and really understand who these people were. And we went in initially just thinking, just thinking about this project from an agricultural and ecological perspective. When we got in our first series of villages to do the work, um, we were met with some pretty strong skepticism at first. And that started to mount and mount uh, into some strong, not just skepticism, but some strong hostilities. Hostility, uh -huh. yeah. Um, and as we tried to diffuse the situation in the first village, uh, it became clear that they, that these villagers were afraid that we were there to, to take them off their lands or mm. to tell them they couldn't farm anymore. Mm. Um, they had heard that with the designation as a national park, they weren't going to be able to maintain their traditional livelihoods. Mm. And being the former stronghold of the rebel group, they had this legacy of hostility and brutality. Um, and so the, the idea that their farms were now a national park really brought the fear that they were gonna... That the government was gonna take over their land again. Exactly, right. exactly. And so we had to modify our, our survey strategy to first really just delve into these conflict dynamics. Um, and in order to do that, 
I sent my my survey crew back to the national park headquarters and I went with some of the trusted local officials and trusted uh, traditional authorities and we sought out each power holder in the surrounding villages and these these villages are organized socially um, into social groups that are called regulados um, where there's a central power holder called a regulo and underneath him are a series of kind of second second degree power holders called fumos and so I went with people representatives from the national park and from the traditional society mm-hmm. and we sought out all the different fumos in the area um, so this is this is local governance basically but it's it's traditional governance it's local governance under a traditional power structure uh-huh. and so we sought out all the all the fumos and and all the traditional healers um, in order to gain first their trust and then permission to work in in these villages um, and that trust building included involved things like uh, going through traditional ceremonies, um, praying and offering gifts to the ancestors and the spirits on the, on the mountain and in the forest um, in order to first pay homage to the traditional power structures and traditional cultural, the cultural traditions, but then also to demonstrate that we're, we were there to work with the people and not, not just collect data on them. So you had to spend how long? How much time did you spend returning to the communities and basically, you know, uh, building trust? I guess basically that's what you were doing. Uh, we spent about a week and a half, uh, just driving around in Land Cruiser, finding different power holders, different uh-huh. fumos, and um, building rapport with them. And so, and so, primarily, what you did is just meet them, talk to them, explain to them what you were doing, and then enter into their ceremonies that allowed them to feel comfortable with who you were. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And once we went through that, that process and spent the time building those relationships and understanding who these people were and what sorts of cultural expectations they had um, and cultural needs they had that needed to be met, once we went through that process, the work started to go really smoothly and we were able to collect mm-hmm. a lot of really quality data and. Um, understand the ecological and a- agricultural practices mm. of these different communities. And from there, the National Park is able to use that information to design to design conservation strategies that meet local needs as well as ecological needs. Mm. So, um, so the learning from that seems to be that, A, it's good to have some historical sense of what had happened there because obviously this group, this, this former rebel group, you know, members of a former rebel group or memo were obviously concerned about government intervention, about anybody coming probably representing or working with the government. Um, so having some sense of the history, but then also, uh, you know, as you say, you you entered their world for a bit. And, and Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I had worked there in this same area before the National Park expanded into this area. Um, and the the response of the population to outsiders before the national park was expanded is much different than it was after the national park was expanded. And so the takeaway for me for this was that the the Civil War ended, you know, 15 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this latent, and with the end of the Civil War and a long period of peace, some of the, some of the history of conflict and some of the history of atrocities and 
human rights violations had become very latent. Mm. But this, the expansion of the national park into the former rebel stronghold really was a triggering event that reignited some of the former tensions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so before, before we ever initiated the, the project, we had spoken to some of the local power holders. We had spoken to the regulados and the regulos to get their permission at that very high level. Um, but the reignite, reigniting of these tensions really required us to percolate down farther into the traditional power structure mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and work much closer, much more closely with different communities. Very interesting. So um, let's jump ahead to a current project. You um, have begun a project in Peru, um, working with extraction industry, industries there and with collaborative, I guess, decision-making and planning processes there. Can you give us a little context for that and um, give us a sense of how that's proceeding? Right. So in in Peru, the Peruvian Amazon holds some of the world's most incredibly biodiverse forests, as well as some of the most intact uh, cloud forests uh, on the planet. And these areas are incredibly important for biological conservation, as well as general ecosystem function, functioning and ecosystem service delivery. Um, in addition to the incredible biodiversity, these forests also have some of the world's largest reserves of gold and mm. tropical hardwoods. And with the economic crash or the economic crisis of 2008, the price of gold has gone up pretty dramatically, creating kind of a second gold rush in mm. Peru. Mm. Um, at the same time, there's been a, a new highway that connects the, the Pacific coast of Peru with the interior of the Amazon in Brazil. And that's made it much more, much easier to extract tropical hardwoods, and it's created new markets. Um, mm -hmm. It's improved access to those markets. Mm -hmm. And so, in Peru, there are several non-governmental organizations as well as government entities that are working to conserve the forests and preserve the biodiversity that exists there. Um, but those those organizations are meeting, are intersecting the challenge of biodiversity conservation in areas where there are huge, huge resource bases to be exploited. And so that, just that intersection creates a big management challenge um, that both the NGOs and the government are trying to surmount. Can you give us just a, a couple of sentences when you talk about the importance of biodiversity management uh, and, that, and the particular importance of this area, these forests, why, what makes them so important? Is it important Globally, is it important simply regionally or locally? Right. So, uh, yeah. So these forests are important on several scales. They're important for the local communities, the local indigenous groups, um, because they provide not only not only cultural um, cultural resources, uh -huh. significance. Um, they also provide ecosystem services, and those services are things like fresh water regulation. Um, climatic regulation, mm. uh, you know, the ecosystem services are the goods and services that sustain human life. Mm -hmm. And so these forests are the, the source of those services for local populations. But as you scale up, these forests are important for things like uh, global climate regulation, mm -hmm. um, global hydrological cycles. Mm -hmm. And so they're important on that global scale as well. Uh, so now you're in a situation where these, these key basically ecological hotspots are in conflict with 
new uh, um, high value resources. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so, you know, it's easy as a resource manager to just look at this as a management challenge. Um, we have a resource that needs to be managed for economic and conservation purposes. And so it becomes almost mathematical in that there's there are a set of variables or components that together produce a situation that needs to be managed. Um, but as I've begun to work on this problem, um, I've really come to understand that the challenges to management aren't just biological and aren't just economic. There are a whole series of social problems and social con constraints on management. Um, the the forests are seeing we're seeing increasing forest conversion and, and for increased deforestation in in these areas for mining and for logging purposes. And those aren't just economic economically driven. They're driven by uh, histories of historical perspective perspectives and perceptions on resource access. So these are largely traditional and indigenous areas. Mm -hmm. um, the Peruvian government owns the land, mm. um, and as the owner of the land, they give concessions to different mining companies or different oil companies or different logging companies. And so there's not just this economic uh, conflict, but there's really a conflict over who is the actual owner of the land, who has the right to the land, and different identity groups have different claims on the land. So and different indigenous groups don't see themselves necessarily as Peruvian, right? They exactly, exactly. So there's not only this idea of Peruvian right to the land, but there's also the Americari uh, right to the land or the Huachapiri right to the land. And land tenure doesn't necessarily follow those identity boundaries. Mm -hmm. um, and so the lessons that we're trying to learn right now are how do we manage these lands? How do we design forest management plans that can be sensitive to indigenous rights and national economic needs, uh, as well as the global need to conserve these forests? So are you brought in by the Peruvian government? Or are you brought in by so external? Go ahead. So I'm working with the Amazon Conservation Association, which is a Peruvian and United States-based non-governmental organization. Mm -hmm. And they've been contracted by the Peruvian government to manage some fairly large tracts of the Peruvian Amazon. Um, and under that contractual relationship, they manage these tracts of, of Amazon forest for conservation purposes, uh, basically. Great. So um, does who you're brought in by affect how you're received and whether or not you're seen as legitimate as, as was the case in Mozambique? It does. It really does. Um, you know, me as a PhD from the United States right. will never fit in and will never be, be able to fully understand the dynamics, the cultural dynamics in this area. Um, but it also affords me the position of being a neutral outsider. So in, these, in the forest communities, there's a tension between the need to conserve the forest and the need to use the forest. And conservation organizations are seen as both facilitators of conservation, but also as, um, as barriers to entry 
for access to these resources. Mm -hmm. And so though that duality creates some real tension between the conservationists and the forest dependent communities. Mm -hmm. So I, as I come in, not affiliated directly with the Amazon Conservation Association and not affiliated with the Peruvian government, I can serve a sort of facilitative role mm -hmm. and give a voice to these indigenous groups who historically haven't had a voice in the Peruvian government and mm -hmm. the, the Peruvian decision-making process. So how do you go about that? Do you convene like large stakeholder groups and bring them all together to have conversations or do you just do shuttle diplomacy and talk to groups independently? It's really a mix of both. Um, initially there's that same trust building process that we talked about with my work in Mozambique. That's the really the most important step in this entire process is is identifying who these groups are, identifying what their needs are in this process, and then building trust around around those needs and building trust in my ability and my willingness to serve as a voice um, for those needs in wider circles. So in, in, in Peru, do uh, in Mozambique, there, w there seemed to be one basically indigenous power structure, local governance structure that you could understand and navigate. Was, is, that, is that the same in Peru, or do different ethnic groups there have their own structures? It's, it's, a, it's a really different sort of traditional system. In Mozambique, um, it seemed to be a bit more hierarchical, whereas in Peru, there is that traditional hierarchy, but it's also much more communal. So mm. engaging one person in a village is really a village decision. Mm -hmm. um, and so these what we're starting to learn is the more transparent you can be with these villages, the the better the process goes and the more willing the village is to, to engage. Um, you know, and it's, it's based around that, you know, this trust building really requires that transparency. Um, we're trying to be as, as transparent as possible and as open as possible and as flexible with the different communities we're working with. So so the first sta step, similar to Mozambique, is to uh, introduce yourself, establish an understanding of the different groups, and uh, build up some sense of rapport or trust. Um, and then do you bring them together across these different divides, these different groups, or do you just sort of deal with them one at a time? Again, it depends on our relationship with each community, but the thing that we're really trying to emphasize is that this is a voluntary process. So we go and introduce ourselves to the communities and try and build a relationship with the community and then give them the option to engage. And if Can I ask though, is it voluntary? I mean, so so their interface with you is voluntary, but but the the resource management's gonna happen whether they do this or not, right? Exactly. Yeah, the resource management will happen. Um, and is happening, uh -huh. uh, and they historically haven't had a voice in that, and so um, we're trying to be very open and transparent and give them the option to have a voice now. Mm -hmm. um, and so we go introduce ourselves, introduce you know the sort of project that we're trying to trying to um, engage in, and then ask if they're interested in engaging and ask if they have needs that they'd like to communicate back to the park managers and back to the the Peruvian government, mm -hmm. um, and then we ask them if they're they would be willing to participate in a series of workshops that can really elicit 
the needs of different stakeholders and different user groups and different communities mm -hmm. um, in a collaborative and deliberative forum. And has there been an openness to this, a responsiveness to this by the indigenous groups? We're really in the initial stages right now. So we're in the we're heavy in the planning process, mm -hmm. um, and we're talking with different groups who are doing work in the Peruvian Amazon with these communities. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're really right now trying to get a sense of the best way to begin this process of trust building. Um, and so there's a lot of front end work that goes into this. Um, in terms of scoping out who the organizations are that work there, who the communities are that we need to engage, who the traditional power holders are, and who the um, formal governmental power holders are that need to be involved in this process. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to do it in a very informed um, and deliberate fashion so that we don't repeat the same mistakes that other organizations have had in this area and other and the you know different groups different members of our group have had at diff in different parts of the world. So is this approach that you describe common? It's a participatory approach. It's a, an approach that attempts to be respectful of the needs and concerns of indigenous populations um, and to engage them and give them voice in, in this process. And you've done it now in Mozambique with a for-profit organization and now with a nonprofit in Peru. I is that type of approach very common in resource management and development work, or is this, um, you know, d does it tend to be less common? Uh, yeah, just one quick correction. That work in Mozambique, my first work was with a uh, for-profit. My my work in the mountain communities um, right. was with the nonprofit. Got it, right. Um, but, yeah, there, this idea of collaborative resource management has gained a lot of momentum over the past maybe decade in conservation organizations and in resource management generally. What's new about this approach, uh, the approach that we're trying to take, is we're trying to, in, to do this resource planning from a conflict-sensitive lens. Hmm. So we know that in the Peruvian Amazon there's a lot of latent and manifest conflict over resource access. Uh, and so we're trying, to, we're trying to, to study those conflict dynamics and study the drivers of those conflicts and design management plans that can be sensitive to those drivers. Mm -hmm. um, and this idea came from work that's been, that's been conducted in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda. There's a group out of Toronto, Canada called the International Institute for Sustainable Development. And they've developed this methodology called conflict-sensitive conservation that really tries to tries to ask these questions. How do protected areas like national parks affect conflict dynamics? Hmm. Um, what sorts of management strategies can both mitigate the impact of a national park on local communities and what opportunities for peace building can a national park or a conservation area have for communities engaged in, conf in conflict? Mm -hmm. And so the work that this methodology was designed for was for an, a highly violent conflict. Mm -hmm. um, we're trying to adapt it to a lower level type of conflict, a more latent, uh, less violent conflict. So um, this is fascinating work. And as I said, it's, uh, it, 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 it seems to be this interesting combination of, as you say, resource management, development, environmental conservation work, and as you say, bringing a lens of conflict and peace building to it, which um, obviously is hopefully 
uh, an, an effective approach to, as you say, both preventing and mitigating um, uh, development work and, and conservation work as a trigger for conflict, which it unfortunately too often is. Um, so fortunately, Columbia um, will have you here for a couple of years, and Josh will be um, will be speaking on his work throughout that time, um, either uh, at the Earth Institute uh, platforms um, or at platforms at uh, AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Conflict Cooperation Complexity, will be offering. Um, so we look forward to hearing more about the, your project in Peru. Thank you. And about lessons learned. And thank you for sharing uh, your, your stories and your approach with us. Um, and um, uh, we'll speak again. Thank you.